0: hey everyone and welcome to the knowledge exchange podcast i'm your host daniel arabilla lead mentor at the knowledge exchange where we run courses and mentorship for clinicians who are looking for some guidance in applying evidence-based practice into their clinical practice so check out our in-person courses this year and more at tkex.org i'm excited today to be joined by dr natalia costa physiotherapist and researcher currently based in sydney and producing insightful and valuable work for clinicians navigating the complexity of pain and navigating uncertainty in practice. We'll be diving into her story, some ways to respond to uncertainty, reflexivity, and some practical takeaways from her latest study. So, Natalia, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm also very excited about being here today.
0: So, the first question we ask all our guests is a famous slash infamous question. What's your story?
1: Yeah, that's a very deep question. And I could go on many different tangents here. But I'll try to keep it simple. Um, Not sure if I'll be able to keep it short, but I'll try to keep it simple. So I guess the short answer is that I'm a Brazilian physiotherapist. So I was trained in Brazil. And then I moved to Australia, where I received most of my research training and where I completed my PhD studies. And I guess my passion for research really comes from my clinical practice. So it, it came from my experience working as a physiotherapist in Brazil, mostly. And it continues to be um, inspired by some of, you know, the experiences that I that I had at that time. And I guess as a clinician, um, I think that's where it is started. Um, in the consulting room um, and I had a lot of patients who would come to see me when they had low back pain flares. Overall, when they had all the different sorts of flares, um, but most of them um, would come to see me because of low back pain flares. And in Portuguese, we actually use a different term that is equivalent to the word crisis in English. So they turn up and say, you know, I'm having a really bad crisis, um, really bad back pain crisis, which meant that they were unable to cope with the symptoms to the point where they really needed help. They they really needed to receive care. And sometimes um, they would have their own explanations for why they were having a flare. For instance, some of them would say, you know, I had a really stressful week at work or really stressful week at home. You know, there, there were a few personal things going on or even things like I picked up something on the floor, um, like a pen. It didn't even need to be something heavy. Um, and then they would say that their back just went. And, yeah, so sometimes they, they would have all the different sorts of theories about what triggered their symptoms, but other times they actually asked me, You know, why am I having this flare and why I'm having this flare or this crisis now? And um, at times, these flares were interspaced by pain-free periods, but other times they were a worsening of symptoms that were superimposed to some sort of baseline pain or discomfort that was always there. And then when they used to ask me that question, I remember feeling very uncertain about what to say. And I also remember looking at the literature and finding, actually not finding much literature on this topic. So I, I found close to no literature on flares. And I thought then, you know, if I ever do a PhD, this will be my research topic because it seemed to be something that was really important for people who experience back pain but also very important for me as a clinician because there was a lot of uncertainty um, in terms of you know me not knowing exactly what to say when they when i was confronted with that question so then i moved to australia and after my english got a bit better um because i wasn't i couldn't speak english fluently when i first moved to australia but after my English improved, I then contacted Professor Paul Hodges, who is based at the University of Queensland, and um, we had a meeting, and of course, he was very interested in this topic as well, and he accepted me as a PhD student. But then it Took me a while to get a scholarship from Brazil, from my home, co- home country. Actually, ended up not getting one because at that time the Brazilian government cut the funding for scholarships. And I also wasn't competitive enough to secure a scholarship in Australia because I didn't have any publications at the time. So I got there eventually. So um, if you're listening to this podcast and you really want to do a PhD, please don't feel discouraged by the first few no's that you get in terms of securing a scholarship because, you know, it can happen eventually. I ended up doing my PhD, um, thankfully, and I learned a lot. So one of the things that I learned was that flares are very much a multidimensional experience that it might be different for different people but often involves this worsening of symptoms or changes in the quality of symptoms that may last from hours to weeks. They are often difficult to tolerate. And again, it's different for different people, but generally impacts how people feel and also tends to impact on their daily activities, whatever these might be. And I also learned through a qualitative study that we conducted that again similarly to my experience in clinical practice the participants of our study had all the different sorts of theories about what triggered their flare ups but overall they tended to think that biomedical factors such as moving in a certain way moving too much or not moving enough you know, sitting for too long, they, they tend to think that these were the most relevant triggers for their pain, meaning that they talked about these things more often than they talked about things like stress or, or sleep or diet. So while we didn't really assess the quality of movement in my subsequent and quantitative studies. Um, We we did a few um, case cross-survey studies. So we we didn't measure quality of movement, but we did measure how physically active people were and whether or not being more active or less active was associated with this flares or or crisis of of back pain in Portuguese. the participants of our qualitative study actually seem to be partially right because we found that being physically active actually reduced the changes of having a flare on the following day, while being sedentary, so spending more time in a sitting position or or lying, you know, lying down, they, these things seem to increase the risk, and we measured that using physical activity sensors, people were wearing them for a month, every day, all the time, 24-7. Um, and that's what we, we identified after conducting a few different analyses. And we also found that when people thought that they had slept poorly on the previous night, they were more likely to have a flare on the following day. So... I got a few answers uh, related to flares, but I also got many other questions and I I learned that there are many other things that we are actually very uncertain about or they're still unknown to us when it comes to back pain. And I guess as I developed as a researcher, I became more and more aware of these uncertainties and how they impact on clinical practice. Because, for instance, when I was observing other clinicians working with people who experience low back pain, when I was doing ethnographic research, which means just sitting there in the room, taking notes of what's going on. So in a nutshell, it's, it's, there's a lot more to it than that, but I'll keep it simple for now. But yes, when I was doing that research Um, I actually noticed that a lot of the uncertainties that I experienced within myself when I was a clinician were also there, were also showing up in these clinical encounters where I was an observer. And there was something very powerful about being there in the room as an observer rather than a clinician because being there as an observer really enabled me to gain some insights, that actually led me to do the whole research on uncertainty, which is actually why I'm being I'm here with you today, um, because you actually invited me to be a guest um, here because of the research that my colleagues and I have conducted on this topic. So, let's chat about uncertainty today.
0: Sounds awesome. That what a the journey from discovering some of the contributing factors and gaining a bit more knowledge and certainty but then having more questions after and it's an interesting journey as we learn more we get sometimes more uh uncertain so perhaps more tolerant to the uncertainty and acknowledging the complexity of of pain um so yeah and keen to dive into the the ethnographic study and uh what you found and from my understanding you also had uh you were a part of another study if you don't mind expanding on um how what inspired you to do the study first of all and, and what yeah. Inspired, yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was a research assistant in a project that was led by now Dr. Karimi Miskoto. At the time, Karimi was a PhD student. And um, the project was funded by a fellowship of Dr. Jenny Satcho, who was uh, an HMRC research fellow at that time. So Jenny got the funding to do that research, which essentially sought to investigate um, how the biopsychosocial approach was enacted in clinical practice and I guess, critically examined how the biopsychosocial approach was being enacted into practice. So my task as a research assistant at that time was to, I mean, there were quite a few things that I was doing, but one of the things that I was doing was to actually collect the data. So I was one of the people who observed these interactions between clinicians. And when I say clinicians, I mean really a range of clinicians. So physiotherapists, medical doctors, psychologists, because we we had two different sides. One was a physioclinic, but the other one was a multidisciplinary clinic where of course, being multidisciplinary, there were quite a few different clinicians from different disciplines working there. And regardless of who I was observing, whether it was a physio, or whether it was um, you know a clinician from another discipline, as an observer, I noticed that there was that elephant in the room that was rarely acknowledged. And I also picked up on how clinicians felt um, seemed to feel a bit anxious when you know patients brought certain questions up or maybe they were not necessarily anxious, but they seemed to have this urge to answer to questions by selling certainty when being a researcher, I knew that there was a lot of uncertainty about some of the things that were being discussed, um such as let's say. The effect effectiveness of treatments like prolotherapy, which is an example that we elaborate on on the paper. So, yeah, I guess the the short answer is that as a as an observer, I I was really, I guess, um, how can I explain? Um, intrigued. I guess that's that's the word, maybe. Um, and at times, to be honest, I was also frustrated about how it was being navigated, so much so that I decided to write a paper on the topic. So because it wasn't obviously my project, I asked Jenny if um, you know the team would be okay uh, with the idea of me using the data for that purpose, because it wasn't something that we intended to investigate initially, really. It was all about the biopsychosocial approach but of course un- navigating uncertainty is part of um you know navigating care so we wrote the paper um which is published so you can refer um the listeners to that one and in that paper um we we focus on uncertainty in the sense of the uncertainties that were related to etiology, prognosis and, and treatments for, for back pain. Um, I don't know if you have specific questions about that study or um, if you would like me to elaborate on it.
0: I think just to uh, reflect back, to, for my understanding, it was uh, navigating the uh, uncertainty that we have with the causes related to back pain, the how long back pain will last, the, the treatments and the treatment options and how effective each treatment option was and so you were uh, impacted it sounds like when you were observing in in as a research assistant how clinicians navigated and I think that's um awesome that you, you you took that emotional experience that you had into some work that will hopefully be talked about and shared and, and now we're discussing it um was that that was my understanding. Is that so we're kind of defining yeah, what yeah. uncertainty is and also the associated feelings that humans have when dealing with uncertainty and, and humans, including ourselves with anxiety and fear and maybe some overwhelm and uh, mm. etc. So h- how do um, how did the clinicians e- experience it during your, your research and um, how did they describe it? Because I imagine some clinicians were probably not aware and some people, clinicians were more aware of how the uncertainty was was in the room. The, the you might might not have seen the elephant, only you may have seen the elephant as the, yeah. the observer. What was your, the experience like for, for them and for yourself?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and in that first research, so the ethnographic study we are talking about, I didn't actually. You're absolutely right. I think a lot of the times they were not necessarily aware of you know that uncertainty, um, that you know patients were experiencing I don't know it's hard to tell because I didn't ask them questions you know at the end of some of these observations so I was very aware of these uncertainties myself but it's hard to comment on what they were first if they were aware of it and then second how they were feeling about it so it it was obviously all based on on my interpretation and also the interpretation of our research team because we discussed these clinical encounters as a team as a group so our analysis was was conducted you know there, there was a part of the analysis that was conducted mostly by me but it it was also the result of a few discussions that we had as a team. So I can't comment too much on you know, how they felt about it in that particular study, but we did notice that they seemed to experience uncertainty when they didn't know what was causing patient symptoms. Or for instance, a classic example was when they couldn't explain the mismatch between an imaging finding and the clinical presentation of a particular patient, and sometimes um, both. It wasn't only about clinicians' experience uncertainty. Sometimes patients also seem to be experiencing uncertainty about what made the symptoms flare up. So <laughs> very similar to my own experience, the the experience that I just shared with you. That was also something that was brought up, and at times um, the clinician just. Dealt with that uncertainty, the patient's uncertainty about what was making the symptoms flare up, by simply, you know, changing the conversation and talking about something else. Um, so really dismissing it, um, unfortunately. And in terms of, I guess how. um, sorry, about how clinicians may feel about it. So that ties in with the second study. So I I can comment on some of the things that I learned from clinicians when I actually talked with them. We we conducted interviews with with different clinicians. So because of the nature of the methods, you Mm -hmm. know, in that particular study, then I'm able to comment on what clinicians actually seem to think and, and thought while we we're talking about this topic. So in that second study on uncertainty, which is the one that is published um, on social science and medicine, we didn't really define uncertainty. So we didn't really limit ourselves to, you know, uncertainties related to causes of back pain or prognosis or you know treatment effectiveness. Uh, we didn't go to the interviews with a pre-established definition of uncertainty. So we didn't really define uncertainty when we were interviewing these clinicians. Instead, we actually asked them to t- walk us through scenarios where either they felt uncertain or their patients, seemed to be uncertain about something. And we asked them to talk about how they navigated that. And it was actually quite interesting to not define uncertainty because clearly their perceptions of uncertainty varied. So um, we were really interested in expanding our understanding of uncertainty and exploring their perspectives to see what sort of things would come up. And I think that actually worked quite well because we ended up learning that their uncertainties or the, the uncertainties that they navigated with their patients were not limited to what is causing back pain or prognosis or treatments for back pain. But instead, they were quite um, complex and and. Ubiquitous because they were linked to many different aspects all the way from navigating patients' emotions, communicating with patients, to navigating patients' social circumstances or, or navigating social determinants of health more broadly, like one's socioeconomic status or health literacy. So that study, that second one, um, was also quite eye opening. So I highly recommend researchers to keep things broad every now and then and not go to the field you know with a particular definition because in my experience, when we when we do that, when we go with uh, with an open mind, we can actually expand our thinking quite a lot. It, it can take us to to different directions, I guess.
0: And with the, the varying definitions that clinicians had and how the context were shaping like how they were feeling about not knowing how treatments would work for someone or not knowing how the person's social determinants or social circumstances uh, might impact the, the their trajectory and their recovery, um, how did they respond and did you find some ways and, um, from the exploration of, of your research, some more helpful ways that clinicians could respond to that uncertainty that that is inevitable in, in practice?
1: Yeah, uh, thanks for another great question, Daniel. I guess I w- I'm more than happy to, um, you know, provide some insights into some ways that might be a bit more helpful, but I also don't want to sound prescriptive. And I am also very conscious that some of the things that I'm about to to, to talk about are not just simply things that we know, you know, we came up with based on things that clinicians said themselves, but it, these things are also things that, Came from our own interpretation and interaction with the data, both the observation, you know, ethnographic observations that we conducted, but also, you know, some of the interviews that we conducted with these clinicians, as well as um, some of the interviews that we actually conducted with people who experienced back pain. So I guess I will start with um, some of them and then I'll discuss. ones that actually come from our analysis of the interviews that we conducted with people with lived experience of back pain so there i think there are quite a few things um, quite a few avenues in terms of how clinicians can respond to and can navigate uncertainty again i don't want to sound prescriptive here but i think it always starts with being reflective and noticing uncertainty without rejecting uncertainty. I really think that that's the first step and that can be difficult um, when, when we are not aware of the things that we don't know, for instance, but when we are aware of these things, I think that it's important to, um, you know, think about them and a, and really take this task of reflecting about them seriously. For instance, I think that in this sort of context is important to ask, you know, that we ask ourselves, how does this uncertainty is making me feel? Is it making me feel curious about this person's context or is it making me feel frustrated or restless? You know, like I need to say something. Rather than you know creating space for silence, is it making me feel impatient? Is it making me, you know, oversell perhaps a particular treatment or make very black and white statements about, you know, a particular treatment? Um, so I guess it's, it's really about examining how we are feeling in terms of how we are responding to uncertainty, what, what sort of emotions are coming up, and why is that the case? And I think then once we have some understanding about that, then it's important that we reflect about what is this uncertainty about X, Y, or Z, whatever you know the source of uncertainty is. What is this uncertainty prompting me to do? As I said before, is it making me simplify things too much and and oversell a particular treatment? Is it making me say that they would definitely get better if they choose a particular path? Um, Is this uncertainty, you know, making me perhaps um, offer a a solution that um, might? You know, I may not have carefully thought about some of the implications of that solution, the solution that I'm proposing. And then, again, I think as part of that, it's important to reflect about how that uncertainty is impacting on the person in front of us. Um, so, you know how how do they feel about about this uncertainty? and yeah, I think responding to uncertainty also requires clinicians to explore how patients feel about it. So making the time to acknowledge and explore patients' emotions related to the uncertainties that they are experiencing, whatever this this might be, um, I think that's also important. So our work suggests that disclosing uncertainty upfront and being subsequently clear. Um, about what the current population-based evidence suggests might be quite helpful. I think the other way that might be helpful is to perhaps focus on the things that we have more certainty about and discuss how to proceed despite uncertainties because there is a really nice quote from Anne-Marie Moore that says that doubt doesn't pre- preclude action um, and you know why that quote comes from her work in um, atherosclerosis I think um, you know it, it can be something that we can reflect about within any context of healthcare. really we we don't always need to be certain about everything before we move on before we carry out you know certain certain actions when it comes to To care so yep
0: so uh multifaceted and and deep I think there's multiple layers and and steps to uh, acknowledge that it's difficult and challenging to feel the emotions when we are uncertain when we have Mm -hmm. likely been taught to be certain and we have Mm -hmm. been playing a role where our job is to provide answers and to provide that certainty. So it's almost a uh, a kind of reflection on the role that we play. And it can be quite uh, a process to navigate to first of all, name and notice the overwhelm, the confusion, the uh, frustration, as you mentioned, it can make us feel helpless, vulnerable. Um, And then having that capacity and also the resources and support around us to feel and express that as humans ourselves and then we can bring in the emotional awareness and, and uh, ask how it's making a patient feel all this kind of emotion work is I would say not standard in EP physio physical therapy practice so it's almost like a, an entirely different perspective a more zoomed out humanistic perspective.
1: Yeah. Um, while you're reflecting about my response, so many things came to my mind. And I guess the first one is about what is said just then and earlier about, you know, we not being prepared enough, perhaps, to do these things as part of our education, whether this education is at undergraduate level or postgraduate level even. And I think there is certainly a lot that we could do in that space. Um, I do think you talked about humanistic approaches. I, I do think that we could um, gain a lot from embedding, you know, concepts of social science and psychology within disciplines like physio and exercise physiology. So I do think that there are a few avenues that we could explore in terms of better preparing Um, you know not only students but clinicians more broadly to really take the task of um, exploring uncertainty seriously and I also think that um, in the also in you know I don't I don't want to sound like I'm just simply blaming clinicians for you know not disclosing or not embracing uncertainty Uh, I also think that um there needs to be a cultural shift, I guess, in terms of, um, you know, helping people to also feel a bit more um, comfortable with some of these uncertainties. And in, in my experience, I think when we make it more about science, for instance, and the things that we don't know, so it's not about you, it's, you know, our current state of knowledge that is incomplete, you know, we may have some of these answers in the future, but we we don't have some of them now. So I, I get that I guess that makes people, you know, okay, so this this is not about me, you know, being this person who, you know, is weird and no nobody understands what's going on or whatever that is. It's you know, I think when we shift things from, you know, the the clinical scenario of a particular person to the actual state of knowledge in a particular field, the current state of knowledge of a particular field that might be helpful. And in the in the research that we did with people who experienced low back pain, they actually seem to place a lot of value in, you know, just be honest about uncertainty. They they didn't seem, at least the people who we interviewed, they didn't seem to be completely averse to, you know, some of these uncertainties um, surrounding the current state of knowledge about back pain. And they seem to appreciate, you know, clinicians who disclose that uncertainty up front. And I'm also very conscious of, you know, it's it's not just simply about, you know, um, these are the things that we don't know, but it's also about Highlighting some of the things that, as I said earlier, we might have some level of certainty about. For instance, we do, and that's very important, I guess, for for what you do as an, an exercise physiologist and what your colleagues do. We do know that exercise tends to, to help, right? Uh, there is moderate evidence that's, that supports that, that in terms of back pain, exercise is actually helpful, So these are some of the things that, you know, we can highlight, I guess, for for our patients. Um, We don't need to simply, you know, we know nothing and leave it there. There are a few bits of information that we can share that might give them a sense of, I guess, control over things that they might be able to do in order to better navigate back pain. And I guess, um, sorry, you go.
0: I was just going to say that's uh, such an important point. The, I believe it was from your paper, the three types of uncertainty, where the, the first type is uh, not knowing what the evidence says about a certain topic. The second type would be our state of knowledge. We just don't know from our current evidence base. And the third is not knowing if it's the first or the second type yeah I think that's that's such a helpful way to externalize the 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 concept and maybe just make space for here are my own emotional responses which are very real and valid and I need to acknowledge them and then there's also it's also not just about me it's about the research base and what our knowledge base so that's it's kind of gives us that space because otherwise we might blame shame that we don't know and it's kind of all meshed into one. So I think I like the what you mentioned, that it's not just about us or not just about any clinician and um, we can hold both.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, that these three different types of uncertainty that you just mentioned, I just want to make it clear that this wasn't my idea. This is um, based on the work from Rene Fox who did a lot of research um, 34 years ago in terms of observing medical students become, you know, medical doctors throughout their training. And, yeah, there is a lot of work that she has done in that field. It's quite fascinating to dig into that literature. So that these three uncertainties were actually something that I had in mind while I was analyzing the data or the first study, so the ethnographic study. So we used different lenses to look at the data, and that was one of them. So thanks for bringing that one up.
0: It's super interesting, and, and I'm just picturing listeners finding out or um, like us talking about it can help spur some ideas as to where their starting point is, with whether if it's awareness and acknowledgement, maybe they in their clinical space don't feel safe, brave enough to express mm. their uncertainty amongst colleagues, for instance, or whether it's um, maybe they've been, I can picture myself shaming, blaming, like it's all my fault. I, I just need to upskill and take all the, like read all the evidence right now. Um, so I think it's helpful to, to know w- where people are at with uncertainty. If it's just the starting point of finding spaces to acknowledge it and, and having a support network around us, um, and seeing how uncertainty is received amongst clinicians and um, and colleagues and patients, I think it gives us hope from your research that just being honest with patients is appreciated, and we can describe uncertainty with this is what we don't know in terms of it's more that it's it's multifactorial. We don't have a clear definitive answer, but we what we do know is this about uh, often. Red flags, seriousness, medical emergency, mm. um, and we can practice explaining uncertainty in confident ways.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. When I when I say that you know there is value in disclosing uncertainty and embracing it, I don't mean that we need to do that in a irresponsible way or in a way that um, you know it doesn't give direction to people is actually quite the opposite. So, you know, you you might need to disclose the uncertainty surrounding, let's say, the mismatch between imaging findings and the clinical presentation, because um, we we know from the literature, from a systematic review, that people who are asymptomatic also have structural changes, right? Um, so that leaves us a bit uncertain about the relevance of some of these imaging findings because both people who have back pain and people who don't have back pain sometimes have them in their MRIs. Um, and conversely, the, uh, the review from the same author, another review, also shows that those who have those structural changes might be a bit more likely to, to present back pain. But again, that, that that is based on just one or two studies. So, you know, it, it's hard. So I, I think we can't make, um, you know, very clear and definite statements about things when really um, we don't have a lot of high quality evidence about some of these things. But I guess what we can... In my interpretation, anyways, what what we can tell from these studies related to imaging is that we we really don't know, right? Whether we we don't have a way of pinpointing when these imaging findings, like a disc degeneration or a bulging disc, are really impacting or are really causing one's symptoms Um, there is so much about you know there are different pain mechanisms there there are different ways of assessing them we don't even have a consensus really in terms of how to differentiate you know different types of pain we are learning more about these things now so yeah I guess my intention is not to make people feel hopeless by any means uh, whether they are Explanations of patients themselves is really to remain aware of some of these uncertainties and you know still attempt to provide some guidance based on the things that we can be a bit more certain about, so, such as, you know, as you said, red flags. So the fact that less than 5% of people will have a serious cause um, for their back pain or for instance, the observation that exercise tends to help, and exercise that is actually supervised tends to help a bit more than exercise that is not. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's important to to remain aware of these fine lines, these nuances, and what you mentioned about culture, um, and I guess that ties in also with mentorship. When I say culture, in the sense of you know the workplace culture in terms of talking about these things this is actually something that clinicians talked about has been very helpful so having mentors or having colleagues with whom they were able to share that uncertainty um so i think there is a lot of potential there to you know trying to create a culture in in workplaces in even in education settings where it is okay to to talk about these things, and often clinicians in in our research share that when they share that uncertainty, it almost decreases the burden of of the uncertainty itself. Because that's the other thing I think is important to acknowledge that sometimes, and there is a huge literature on that in the medical field. Sometimes uncertainty can be associated with burnout and also with, you know, adopting approaches that are highly biomedical because if you feel uncomfortable with uncertainty, sometimes that prompts people to, you know, um, try to prescribe more tests or, you know, more medications or, or whatever that is. So sometimes it, it can prompt clinicians to take a, a reductionist approach when it comes to providing care. And Super I think,
0: yeah. To, to, the, to uh, I think, highlight, I think, the, that urge to provide that certainty. And maybe this is a reflection on um, also handling the, the differing approaches to uncertainty not only within an individual workplace culture, but within a referral network as well, where there might be differing um, tolerances to uncertainty. And I can imagine this was also a, a theme perhaps that you've heard about or come across.
1: Yeah, uh, I, do, I do think, and I think we make that point in the paper that, you know, people, of course, may feel the weight of uncertainty in different ways, especially, I think, people who have persistent pain because I think as time goes by, you know, I think as they start off a pain journey, a low back pain journey, um, you might feel a bit more likely to be, I don't know, it's hard to tell, but um, if, again, I think it's different for different people, but I to me, it makes sense to think that as time goes by, people may become more aware of uncertainty, and they might become—I don't know—more tolerant or, or perhaps less tolerant when it comes to you know what is causing their pain. If they, because if they have received, let's say, different messages from different clinicians about what might be causing their symptoms. And as time goes by, they still don't know how to deal with the symptoms, they still don't know how to prevent future flare-ups, or they still don't know how to deal with the emotions that accompany, you know, pain and and these flare-ups, they might be perhaps more or less, uh, I guess, more likely to be less tolerant to it so again it's hard to tell i think it would be interesting to actually investigate that further you know the different um levels of tolerance to uncertainty there are instruments to assess that you know from a quantitative perspective but it would be interesting to understand what makes people more likely to be more or less tolerant to uncertainty so never know i might um, explore that sometimes into
0: the unlimited number of PhDs that can arise from this yeah. podcast I'm <laughs> looking forward to it Um am yeah. very mindful of the time and I'd love to dive into your recent paper um, hopefully by the time this podcast has been released it will be released I'm sure it will be um, and yeah. so some of the main takeaways that you'd, you you've found from your qualitative study and And I have one theme I'm curious about if we have the time to expand on.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So in terms of the things that um, we learned from people who experience low back pain, so the paper that you were referring to, hopefully by the time you're listening to this podcast is a study that was published in Pain. So in that study, People with low, our analysis, I guess, of the interviews that we conducted with people who experienced low back pain suggested that the uncertainties are actually not limited to, you know, things like causes of back pain or um, the mismatch between an imaging finding and a clinical presentation. The participants of our study actually felt uncertain about what the future holds. They felt uncertain about clinicians' ability and willingness to help them. They experienced uncertainty about the kinds of questions that clinicians ask, how to respond to certain questions, how to make sense of contradictions. For instance, scenarios where the same clinician was saying different things at different times, or scenarios where different clinicians were saying different things. So that was another scenario where they experienced uncertainty, and they also felt uncertain about whether or not they were being taken seriously by clinicians. Which I guess is quite, um, yeah, quite frustrating and quite quite sad, actually. So even when clinicians, I guess the take-home message here is that, that even when clinicians may feel like patients want an answer um, because their uncertainties are related to biomedical aspects, such, such as having a specific diagnosis, the uncertainties that they may be are often actually related or can be actually related to aspects of the clinical interaction. So aspects that clinicians could potentially, you know, modify really. And also related to broader aspects of their lives, such as their ability to maintain independence over time, how to handle emotions, and also what care might be available to them. So I think overall our study really encourages clinicians to remain curious about the uncertainties that people with low back pain might be experiencing because these may not necessarily be what they think. So the uncertainties might be based on our findings. They are often intertwined with relational aspects, so aspects of their clinical interaction um, like feeling unheard during an appointment with a given clinician. But the good news um, of that study, I guess, because we also we didn't only ask patients, oh, sorry, people with back pain to talk about scenarios where they experienced uncertainty. We also asked them, you know, to give us some insights into how the clinician could have helped them to navigate some of these uncertainties or things that they wish the clinician had done differently. And I think the second takeaway message of that study relates to how clinicians might help patients or people with low back pain to navigate these uncertainties in better ways. And according to our participants or our analysis of what participants discussed, um things like providing guidance in terms of how to manage symptoms, active listening, using open-ended questions, disclosing and embracing uncertainty was also highlighted, as well as remaining curious about one's context. So they seem to place a lot of value in that about clinicians who seem to demonstrate a genuine curiosity about their context and also seem to be generally generally invested in helping them um, so that context in that context engaging in reflexivity seems to also be quite important
0: may I ask the reflexivity question was that? earlier on my plan to ask you and I've got like a million <laughs> questions. Right. So if there's time, if you, you expand on that reflexivity, because I've heard, it can be slightly different to reflexive practice.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I guess um, that's actually well, what I tell my students. Um, so when we reflect about the care that we provide, we may reflect about things that we could do better in the sense of, let's say, You know, I did treatment A today, that didn't work quite well, Um, so I might try treatment B next time. Or, you know, I forgot to mention that thing to that patient, so next time I'll make sure that I spend some time clarifying that thing that I missed. So that would be, you know, part of being a reflective practitioner, clinician, but reflexivity is is a bit deeper than that. So reflexivity is about examining our assumptions, our beliefs as clinicians, our values, as well as broader factors, social and systemic factors or structures that underpin the way that we practice in our clinical contexts as well as the way that we think or the way that we tend to think and the things that tend to underpin how we do the things we do or um, why we we hold certain assumptions or beliefs about elements of, of our clinical practice. So if we think about critical reflexivity more specifically, there is an emphasis on considering, for instance, the unintended assumptions and effects of our actions within clinical practice. And when I, when I talk about critical reflexivity, I need to, of course, cite Dr. Jenny Secho, who was my mentor for quite some time, and also Dr. Karimi Miskoto. So Karimi is now a doctor. And they have done some research in which they actually encourage clinicians to engage in critical reflexivity. So Jenny has done this work in the context of rehabilitation within a children's hospital. And then Karimi has done the same something similar um, in the context of flowback back pain. And of course, Jenny was involved in that one too. So the biopsychosocial project that I mentioned earlier because Jenny was Karimi's primary supervisor. So based on their work, engaging in reflexivity can be quite rewarding. So clinicians reported that, um, but they can also be quite uncomfortable, confronting at times and, and challenging as well. So in their research, being critically reflexive um, really helped clinicians to examine their decision-making regarding what to include in a day-to-day clinical practice, um, encourage them to reflect about their physiotherapy training as well, or their training more broadly. It made them reflect about what constitutes good care, so what characterizes good care and what are some of the unintended effects of clinical practice. And I do think that the same concept, of so reflexivity or critical reflexivity can be highly relevant for navigating uncertainty particularly in terms of examining the unintended consequences of navigating uncertainty the way we do. So that ties in with some of the things that I mentioned earlier. For instance, I I think that if a clinician navigates uncertainty by denying it and selling too much certainty, I think there is a risk of making patients feel deceived if things don't turn out to work as Promised. And I also think that being too certain about a patient's presentation or about the patient's context may also make patients feel dismissed. So I think that, for instance, clinicians may not really take the time to examine the patient's context because they think that they already know what's going on, anyways. So they may not make the time to listen to the patient because they think they you know, already know what they need to know.
0: The assumptions, I think, is a helpful starting point to always reflect on and having that time and space within, I'm just thinking private practice, back-to-back patients, kind of, uh, there, there is that, uh, there are other competing demands and, and um, there might not be that opportunity to ask these questions and and question the frameworks that we use um, within our practice. I think that, that's helpful that you provide some starting points with like what are the the beliefs underpinning the questions that we're asking in the first place, or um, and maybe even mm. reflecting on when we have case reviews or um, reflect on uh, our cases and 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 our treatment plans what are the questions that we're asking in the first place? It's almost like a reflection Mm. of a reflection um, to to start with, to to look at um, some of the assumptions. And then from there, what might the the consequences, the implications of our actions be? Often uh, unintended as well, Um, the potential for harm. I think just um, acknowledging it, I think is a a first step. so then, we can gain some deeper insights into our practice.
1: Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more with your interpretation. I think examining assumptions um, all the way from the way that we think to the tools that we use, I think is very important, as well as you know the assumptions underpinning even the research that we consume um, as clinicians or researchers.
0: And there's that final theme of. Uh, that I wanted to expand on from your recent paper uh, touching on epistemic humility and uh, how that might look in, in practice. So the essentially the the way I'm interpreting it is being humble about our understanding and Mm. uh, maybe linking back to uncertainty, acknowledging that there is uncertainty in, in our knowledge base um, and recognizing that we might, we might not know something. And that's, that's, human that's natural it's okay um how might this look in practice from from what you found as well and from your experience
1: yeah no sure more than happy to elaborate on that i think it might be helpful just for for your listeners if i briefly explain what the fourth theme was about and then what i mean by epistemic injustice and epistemic humility so i might you know walk them through these concepts and the theme. So I'll start with the theme. Um, So the fourth theme on that paper, it's about how individuals feel uncertain in terms of not being taken seriously. So they leave clinical encounters wondering, have I said the right things? Have I asked the right questions? Did this clinician take me seriously? And often, you know, the more they reflected about the clinical interaction, the more they realized that maybe they were not being taken seriously as they would like. Um, And I guess this type of uncertainty that people with low back pain experience or our participants experienced, this was very relational. So this was very much about not having the pain seen by others. It was about not feeling heard or believed that often produced uncertainty and also negative emotions like frustration. For instance, one of the participants of our study mentioned that she would leave the encounter worse than when she first went in because she felt like she wasn't being taken seriously. And some of them actually felt that they couldn't really negotiate important aspects of their care. And at times, they decided to avoid care altogether. So our findings really highlighted the importance of creating a health environment that makes people feel safe, respected, and trusted, as opposed to feeling uncertain about whether they are being taken seriously or not. So this specific theme was centered around this concept of epistemic injustice. And by epistemic injustice, I mean situations where patients' credibility is reduced or they are not taken seriously, or you know their experiences, their um, input, or the things that they have to say are considered irrelevant. So in a nutshell, this is what I mean by epistemic injustice. And the good news, so you asked about epistemic humility and what it might look like in practice. I think the good news is that, yes, we we can minimize this sense of epistemic injustice by striving for epistemic humility. And in short, I could talk about, we could have a whole podcast about this, but in short, the word epistemic relates to knowledge or ways of knowing. So epistemic humility is then about being humble and exploring our assumptions about what we know and also recognizing what we don't know. So you are absolutely correct. And as I said earlier, that doesn't mean that we just go out there and we say proudly and out loud that we know nothing. uh, We don't know anything about, Um, We don't know nothing about anything, but it it is uh, rather about recognizing that our understanding about a particular topic, in this case, about back pain, is incomplete and that we clinicians may not perceive things clearly as we would like to think we do. So in a clinical context, it would be about recognizing that we don't know everything. And sharing that with with our patients, again, always linking back to the little things that we do know. Um, But, yeah, it would be about recognizing the things that we don't know because that leads to that often, very often leads to curiosity. Because if I acknowledge that I don't know everything about one's back pain or about one's life, I'm then more likely to try to learn more from my patients and conversely if i think that i know everything and i'm the expert in the room and um you know i, I hold power uh, the power of knowledge uh, then i'm unlikely to pursue certain conversations with my patients because i believe that i already know everything so epistemic humility really forces us to be less than 100% confident with our proclamations and our positions and it really makes us acknowledge that we might be missing something because we are observing things from a particular standpoint and sorry i'm, I'm getting to a bit of quantum physics here about how you know um, what we observe depends on the where we are as observers but I guess going back to what epistemic humility looks like in clinic in clinical practice, it's really about demonstrating a genuine interest about the patient's experience. It's about engaging in reflexivity. As I said earlier, examining what, what are the assumptions that we might be making about a particular person and why we are making these assumptions. It's about being empathic. So, you know, it it might sound, I don't know if it sounds like it's it's an easy thing to do uh, or not, but I don't think that is that easy, to be honest with you. And I think it really requires training and skills. I think being epistemically humble really requires us to do quite a lot of work and I guess that ties in with the, what we discussed earlier. I think we we need to train our future and even the current workforce to do that better.
0: There's so much within that, and I think the it, for the listeners, I recommend we've had Doctor Karimi musquato on uh, in a previous episode talking about power, and I think it intersects with that. One of the points you mentioned of um, creating that space for, for shared decision-making, for collaboration, for negotiation is so essential. And if we see ourselves as the all-knowing expert, we're going to silence without intending to. We're going to minimize a person's context, experiences, their opinions. I think uh, this is such a helpful uh, reflection now to, to see how we are navigating these conversations. Um, and that we need some training and perhaps in skill sets that aren't marketed much. I'm not sure about mm. what you've seen, but this it comes back to if, if some of the sources of uncertainty for, for I was going to say clients, for patients, for people with back pain was more of the relational aspects of their care, where might our training be? where should our training and our skill sets um, lead us to? What kind of skill sets would be helpful for that?
1: Mm, that's such a great question, Daniel. And I actually talked about this um, a couple of months ago at the World Congress, um, uh, World Physiotherapy Congress. And I I do think, and I sort of alluded to that earlier, I do think that we need more space to social science, um, you know, sociology, behavioral sciences, philosophy. We need more of all these things in training, I think, in training of healthcare professionals more broadly. Of course, I spoke, you know, in a conference where the audience was you know, mostly composed by physiotherapists. But I do think that this might be relevant for other disciplines as well. So, for instance, I will just give a few examples. We do teach in most allied health or medical programs, we do teach things like evidence-based practice, right? We do teach students to critically appraise a randomized controlled trial or a systematic review. We, you know... Now, more recently, we are also encouraging them to consume more qualitative research and, you know, reflect about qualitative findings as well, critically appraise qualitative research as well as quantitative research. But we rarely encourage them to think about what are the assumptions of the research embedded in the research that we are consuming and that we are producing as well. So there are different. So we talked about epistemic and epistemology earlier. Uh, There are different ways of knowing. There are different ways of being. So different ontologies, and you know the the ontologies and the epistemologies that tend to dominate health uh, physiotherapy and healthcare more broadly are very post positivist, which by many that, that they tend to assume that there is one truth out there that is waiting for us to, you know, uncover that truth. And if we use the right methods, if we reduce bias, then we will uncover that truth. But this is just one way of, you know, knowing um, and one way of understanding reality. There are other ways, and. I think, for instance, we could learn a lot from indigenous epistemologies and, and ontologies. Their ways of knowing, their ways of being. Um, but you know that that's just again, you know, I just mentioned um, one alternative to that. Um, but there are there are other ways, and I think if we start to create space, for instance, to encourage. Um, you know, students and clinicians to reflect about these different epistemologies, these different ontologies, that might be a start. Um, and I guess another example would be, for instance, and I think that's changing, to To be fair, um, you know, that, you know, I think lots of curriculums around the world will have, you know, a space for communication um, or things like motivational interviewing as part of training. Um, I'm I'm mostly talking about physio, right? Because that's my my area. Um, but I do think that teaching students motivational interviewing skills is not enough. I think that we we can't talk about communication without thinking about cultural safety or emotional labor for instance because very often the things that we do will lead to certain emotional responses and you know at times we need to know how to navigate these emotions but this is something that is often neglected in our training so yeah, I, I don't wanna, you know, sound overly pessimistic <laughs> and say that, you know, um we we haven't done nothing. Um, but I do think that there is a lot of things that we can still do and expand on and do better.
0: There's a lot we can build on, I think because it's not like our yeah history has gone to waste with whatever skill sets we currently have. I think we can build on our knowledge base and be aware of the multiple paradigms and the, the different types of knowledge and have these discussions and and dive deeper and embrace that, that learning is going to be a process. It's, um, I I can't envision a four year university degree, even five years to cover everything that there is to know <laughs> about even something as complex as pain and all the intricacies the complexities and how to navigate and, and how to interact with humans experiencing that so i think that was a helpful starting point um and i also will give a shout out to dr oliver thompson's podcast series where you were also a guest on i think he also touches it on it very well in a a way that's applicable to clinicians in in practice so uh, would there be other resources for the listeners out there who are um curious to expand on on as you mentioned some different sources of, of knowledge you mentioned social sciences sociology um even maybe looking at cross-disciplinary um learnings about say behaviorism or, or looking at psychology literature what, what would you suggest for for the listeners out there who are uh, interested in a starting point for diving deeper resources for them Hmm.
1: Are you asking about resources in terms of um these different paradigms?
0: Yes. So, like,
1: yeah,
0: um, things that come to mind like we mentioned critical reflexivity, like critical theory, um,
1: yeah, constructivism,
0: um, and I
1: all can these buzzwords I can't... that are very
0: very uh hard to describe. Even I'm um, just starting to learn myself. So this is a very selfish question, but. What would you recommend? Yeah,
1: (laughs) No, that's fine. There are quite a few uh, resources that um, people can, that I could refer your listeners to. Um, The first book that I read was um, Crotty's book and the title is The Foundations of Social Research. So it's quite interesting because he takes you through, you know, it's, it's almost like a a timeline of you know how how this, some of these epistemologies and ontologies emerged who were the first people to you know discuss them or defend some of these ideas over time so it's quite an interesting one so i can send you the citation for that one and then um I guess as soon as you asked me the question, I thought about, you know, the first book that I read on the topic and one that I'm currently reading. So I guess the most recent one, which is Research Design. So that's um, a new book um, that was, I think, released late last year. Um, One of the authors is Julianne Cheek. I forgot the name of the second author. I apologize for that. But in that book, they talk about research methods, both quantitative and qualitative. And they do, you know, talk about some of the theoretical opinions in terms of epistemologies and ontologies that are related to these different methods. So that could be another resource. Um, There is also um, a really nice... for I guess for clinicians, that that one was published on JOSP, so a physiotherapy journal. But I think EP's exercise physiologists might be able to um also find that one quite helpful because it's just you know a few short series. I think there are five um editorials, short editorials on qualitative research. And in the last one, oh no, the second one. Sorry, in the second one, they do talk about some of these um, epistemologies and ontologies in a very, you know, in, in my head, anyways, in, in a very uh, nice way, and making some using some metaphors to help people to understand some of these concepts. So that might be an interesting one as well. I'm happy to send you the citations of the different resources that I'm
0: talking about. That'd be amazing. So the the was it two books, Foundations of Social Research by Michael Crotty and Research Design by Julianne Cheek and Elise Obie, I believe? And then yeah. there was a third one that now escaped me. This is why this is recorded. Yeah. We'll follow it's, And it's I'll fine. post it in the show notes as well.
1: Great. Sounds good. Yeah. It's the part two of a series on qualitative research that was published on um, JOSP.
0: We've touched on some much needed topics. I feel that aren't talked about enough. And that last point really resonated with me. They uh, mentioned about the emotional labor that this kind of work takes, because uh, just yesterday I heard from a colleague who, uh, has since moved on from healthcare in total. And that was the, those were the words that he used to describe the reasons why he moved on. Oh, um, wow. and he's in a different profession now because he, that, that emotional labor was too much. Um, and I think, um, talking about it is that first step and talking about that it takes a lot of uh, extra training and skill sets and, and that we deserve the training and the learning. Um, and it can be uncomfortable and difficult at times, but researchers like you are making it easier and, and helping um, promote and uh, share this knowledge. So really appreciate all that you're doing, Natalia. And for- Oh,
1: thank you. That's so kind of you. Thank you.
0: And for the listeners who are keen to hear more from you and, and um find your work and if you're willing to share your, your contact details as well, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, sure. Um so I'm a lecturer at the University of Sydney. My email is natalia with th.costa at sydney.edu.au. Um I'm also um, an adjunct research fellow at the University of Queensland. But my email at UQ is a bit more complicated. So just just to stick with the Uni Sydney one. I'm also on Twitter. Um, So my Twitter handle is, I can't even remember what that is, but I think it's Natalia with TH, yes, C Costa 1. So that's how people can find me. And just before we... Finish up. I just would like to make a quick comment about um you know broader contexts such as health policy and health systems because I think this is something that clinicians you you talked about time constraints and you know training and lack of skills and so I think that is important that of course we talked about a lot about clinicians because that's you know they were part of the um I guess, groups of participants that I um, had in my research on that topic. But I think that is important that we also acknowledge that health systems and policies can play a major role in terms of enabling clinicians to navigate uncertainty in better ways. So, you know, time constraints often get in the way of having some important discussions, Um, the Funding systems often don't uh, remunerate, you know, clinicians by the quality of the care that they provide. Sadly, it's all about often, not all, but more often than not, is about quantity. So I guess that it's not very encouraging in terms of, you know, they don't have financial incentives to actually um, try to, you know, really put the effort into developing some of those skills or or doing better. That said, of course, I don't want to, you know, make the point that one needs to have some financial incentive to, to treat people, you know, in a way that is, you know, provide care that is human and humanized. Um, But I think it's just important that we acknowledge these things that, you know, there are, broader systemic structural factors that may act as um, you know I, I don't want to say barriers yeah barriers um, but yeah I, I, I guess so yeah if... yeah yeah I'll take that yes because um, that's yes. A common so it's important to, to acknowledge things. Yeah it's important to acknowledge these things.
0: Amazing. Natalia thank you so much for sharing and very keen to continue reading your work and seeing what uh, emerges from it, because it's super fascinating and and practical and, and relevant to all the work that we do. So appreciate it until the next time.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me.